open your Bible to Psalm 20. Or unlock your Bible or turn on your Bible or whatever you have to do to get your Bible to Psalm 20. Do that now. Do you remember in school when your teacher would come in at the beginning of the day and she would say, we've got a lot to do this morning, put on your thinking caps. I knew right at that moment this was going to be the worst day in school. As soon as my teacher said that, I was like, oh man, get me out of here. I want anything but this. So at the risk of sounding like that, we got a lot to do this morning. I'm going to need you to put on your thinking caps. Some of the things that we're going to talk about are going to be a little difficult. And some of the things you may not be used to hearing or may be difficult to understand and wrap your mind around. And so I want you to bear down if you can and really think with me on this. We're coming to Psalm 20 which is the last psalm that we're going to do this summer. And like I said last week, we're, my aim right now, my plans, uh, outside of a 2021 pandemic, or what's worse than a pandemic? I don't know. But uh, outside of something like that, uh, the plan is to go through 10 psalms next summer and on and on for, I don't know, 100 years or however long it takes us to get to the end. And then probably start over, I guess. But my thought was this morning, Psalm 20, I wanted to take and, and really give not only what David is saying, but also help us remember all of the things that the Psalms have taught us up until Psalm 20. So in a sense, kind of summarize some of what Psalm 20 has already taught us. And then at the same time, help us transition into what's coming next week, which will be a series on the church, really talking about who we are as a people. What is the DNA, the fabric of the church? And what, what, what does it mean to actually be a church? What is our purpose, our function, all of those kinds of things? So summarize what we've done in Psalms, transition to a series on the church. And that series on the church is actually going to prepare us for entering back into Matthew at chapter 18, where we left like what feels like a hundred years ago. All right. So I wanted to do all of those things this morning, and maybe I've done them, maybe I have not. We'll see. But I need you to put your thinking caps on and bear down with me. David is writing this psalm. Psalm 20 is a, is a psalm of David, and it is so frequently misinterpreted. And so it requires a lot of deep thinking for us. We're, we're going to read it. We're going to think deeply about what it's saying, and also, hopefully, what it's not saying. So with that in mind, let's look at Psalm 20 to the choir master, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's this word that I pray you would put in our hearts, that you would help us to understand. We require your help to understand it, and so we pray you would give it. But more than just understanding it, I pray that it would be a great comfort to us. That the truth of your word would sit on our heart with a mighty weight, would convict us, and would point us to your glorious throne in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, 
I mentioned that interpreting the Psalms can be really pretty difficult for a number of reasons. This is probably true of all of Scripture, but it can be difficult mainly because you have to get the application right or you will absolutely abuse the text and you will totally misapply it to a lot of things that it wasn't even written about. Uh, Contrary to popular belief, it's not merely good that we just read the Bible or that we just read it for just simply for knowledge and all of that, just go through the verses. That's not what we're trying to do when we read the text. We're actually trying to understand it. Because reading the Word is absolutely no use if you misapply it. So if we interpret it to say something that it doesn't say, if we interpret it to promise us something that it doesn't promise us, or warn us about something that it's not warning us about, then we're no different than Mormons or Jehovah's Witness or anyone else who would pick up the Scriptures and totally abuse what they're saying and take everything out of context. The Bible is absolutely fit being God's Word, being inerrant and infallible, absolutely and totally fit to train us in righteousness, to correct us if we apply it correctly. If we understand it for what it actually means. Now I mentioned that when we, uh, a couple of weeks ago, that when we interpret the Psalms, we first have to interpret them contextually. And that means that we have to look at what is being written to the audience that it's written to and understand why it is written to that audience and what is being said. We have to understand it as they would have read it first. We need to understand that correctly. Then, we have to understand it Christologically, meaning in light of Jesus. We live in a New Testament era. Now that Jesus has come, now that we know that God's revelation to us was in Christ, that He was going to die for our sins, and on the third day He was going to be raised from the dead, now that we know that, what has that changed about the text? What has that shed light on the text? How has that altered our application? If it has, surely we need to read things through the lens of Christ coming. That's the second step. But then, and only then, can we then step into our own day and age and interpret it corporately? A couple of weeks ago I said for comfort. Same idea here. We interpret it corporately as a body together. Now in the New Testament era, how do we understand this passage as applying directly to me? What does this say to me? What does it mean that I should do? Now this method method that we should work through is something that we should do anytime we read the Bible, regardless of what passage or where it comes from, because it helps us to apply it correctly to our life. And it's difficult to do sometimes. Some passages are harder than others. In In this passage, it's of particular import. But I can think of no better psalm to end our series for this summer than this one. And perhaps no better psalm to get us into the series on the church coming next week than Psalm 20. In this psalm that's in front of us, our agenda this morning is to understand what it means to David, what it means to the audience David is writing to that would be receiving this for the first time. Then in the end, I want to read this in light of now that Jesus has come, how do we understand Psalm 20? which you may pick up on a little bit along the way. And then at the very end, I want us to see how it applies to us. What does it then mean for us? So there are three things, three main parts of this uh, passage that I want you to see this morning. First is that the Lord's help is the only way to victory. The Lord's help is the only way to victory. It's the first thing that this psalm is going to communicate to us. The Lord's help is the only way to victory. Some Weeks ago, I mentioned that there is a temptation when we read the Bible to take it as pertaining mainly to us, that it's mainly about us. 
So when promises are made in the Scriptures, we make ourselves initially the beneficiaries of those promises. Anytime we read a promise, that's our inclination. We make it mainly about us. Case in point, when we read Psalm 20, and it opens with him saying, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. I bet more than one of us in here probably initially interpreted that as applying to you, to me, to me. May he answer me in the day of trouble. That's what he's saying here, that you that's written there in the text is is me. May he answer me in the day of trouble. As if this psalm is a promise to me that the Lord is going to answer me in the day of my trouble. Well, then in verse 4, it gets even better. He says, may he grant me my heart's desire and fulfill all my plans. We're cooking with gas now. Hey, I like where this is headed, right? I, I like the sound of that. Grant me all my desires, all my plans. I am going to really enjoy this passage, I think. As you can imagine, the prosperity gospel preachers jump all over verse 4. Write tons about verse 4. Joel Osteen in his book, All Things Are Working for Your Good, asks you, the reader, have you allowed... I won't do my impression, but I'm tempted to do my impression. Have you allowed any dreams to get buried in you? He says, God sent me to light a fire inside you. That dream is still alive. God is saying to you, Go back and try again. This is your time. This is your moment. Your destiny is calling out to you. Don't settle for less than your dream and refuse to enter the struggle. Your destiny is at stake. Off that verse. Prosperity gospel movement that's made popular by people such as Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and Joyce Meyer and many others like them thrives on the power of positive thinking. If you think positively, it will come about. I've even had searching for, for that quote, which wasn't very hard to do, actually. I've even found Joel Osteen talking about if you think you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick. Because the heart of the prosperity gospel is the power of positive thinking. If you think positively then God gives you what you're thinking. The prosperity gospel is built on that notion that that is faith, to think positively about a topic. And if you think positively about it, those are seeds. And those little seeds of positive thinking, are you telling God your heart's desire? So then you sprinkle a little bit of Psalm 20, verse 4 in there. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And bang! God grants you your desires like a genie from a bottle. The problem with that interpretation of Psalm 20 is that, of course, the you in the psalm is David, not the congregation. The you is David, not the congregation. Therefore, it's not you that the psalm is written to. It's written by David and about David. Now, on the first read, it may sound to you like David is praying this on behalf of the people of Israel. And I bet most of us probably on the first read thought that when we read it. And you can picture, right? You can picture David standing up in front of the congregation of the nation of Israel in sort of a benediction to the congregation and praying over them or saying about them, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. But that's not what actually is going on. 
This is David writing a psalm that is to be sung by the congregation to God about Him. Psalm 20 and 21 are slightly different when it comes to the corpus of the whole Psalter. They're slightly different in their orientation because they're sung by the congregation about David. You get a hint of this in verse 6 where the congregation says, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed David. He will answer him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. It's a confidence that the Lord will respond to the benediction about David from the beginning of the psalm. Then in Psalm 9, you have the congregation saying, O Lord, save the king. May he answer who? Us, when we call. And then, if that's not enough, Psalm 21, the congregation is praising the Lord for answering the prayer of Psalm 20. Psalm, Psalm 20. And we won't be in Psalm 21 until next year. So you just have to remember all that. I'll remind you. Psalm 21 is them praising the Lord for answering the prayer of Psalm 20. The congregation says in 21.1, so the next psalm, he says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. In verse 4 they say, he asked you of life. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. The congregation is saying this. So in Psalm 20, God has, God's anointed king has penned a song for the congregation to sing in which they would ask the Lord to grant him victory in battle. You can imagine the setting now. With that in mind, now think about the setting. The day of trouble is coming on the nation of Israel. Enemies are gathered at the gate. Or perhaps they're going to attack an enemy. What does God's anointed king do when the enemy draws near to the city? Does he gather his soldiers for a rousing speech? Perhaps he gathers his generals together to form a, a battle plan? No. No. He joins the congregation of his fellow brothers and sisters to pray for him. That's what he does. He gathers the congregation of the saints to pray for him as he goes into battle. And they say, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings in regard with favor, your burnt sacrifices. Why is it important that you understand that context for this psalm? Because it helps make sense of verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your plans. Well, what is his heart's desire? Why has he gathered there with them? It's being rescued from the enemy that is surrounding him. That's his heart's desire. That's the desires of his heart. We know that because in the next psalm, verse 2, the crowd cries out, You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request from his lips. David isn't praying for Ferraris. He's praying for life. He's praying that the Lord would spare him. That the Lord would rescue him from death. And then verse 5 of Psalm 20 is further evidence of what his heart's desire is for the king and his people. He says, may we shout for joy over your salvation in the name of our God. Set up banners May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. His heart's desire is right there. That he would win. 
The banners that they're talking about there in verse 5 are the banners of celebration that you hang up when you win like we would do for a championship team today. 17 times. It's been hung up here, but that's neither here nor there. This would be the banners that celebrate military victory that the Lord has granted. See, this is what the anointed king does before he goes into battle. This is how he approaches battle. Because he knows something of vital importance. That the beginning of this psalm is telling us, if we understand it rightly, that without the Lord going before him in battle, without the Lord giving him victory, there is no victory to be had. Without the Lord actually going into battle and doing the fight, fighting for him, death is in, in, in a certainty. Defeat is inevitable. The Lord's help is the only way to victory. But second, we see that the Lord is predisposed to help his king. The Lord is predisposed to help his king. Notice the change that takes place between verse 5 and verse 6. All the maze that were in the first five verses have all been swapped out for certainty. Look at verse 6. He says, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. This is confident assertions by the congregation of the righteous. All the people that are come around, they come around and pray for David, they're confident that their prayers will be answered. So confident, in fact, are they that they state it as already being done. Of course, God is going to do this. But why? Why are they so confident? Well, they're confident for at least a couple of reasons. And the first is because they're confident because the Lord that they serve is greater than the other gods. They all agree with that. That He's greater than the other gods that are out there. The little g gods. He's greater than all of them. And He tells you that in verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Remember Moses in Deuteronomy warned the future kings of Israel not to collect horses and chariots, not to collect wives from other nations, not to collect gold and silver. Why? Because they would come to trust in those things. Moses says in Deuteronomy 17, 16 to 17, only he, that is the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. They're not to trust in Egypt, essentially, to provide for them. He, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest, he turn, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. The concern here is that, the, that his possessions of the wives and the gold will turn his heart away from the Lord. That the acquiring of horses for battle will, will cause his mind, his heart, to think that the horses and the chariots are what's going to provide him the victory when he goes into battle. But the Old Testament tells us a number of times as the children of Israel walk into the land of, of the, promise, the promised land, that it's the Lord that's going to drive out the enemy. They only need to show up on the battlefield. One man will drive out a thousand. I'll, I'll drive them out. I'll fight for you. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because the Lord is predisposed to help his king. And they know that. Remember how this all began. Going back to Psalm, chapter, or Psalm 2. For nearly 20 psalms now, we've been talking about the same concept over and over. And really, a lot through the Gospel of Matthew. And we will continue doing that. We've been talking a lot about the kingdom of God. And I said the purpose of this first book of the psalms, Psalm 1 to 41, is demonstrating the fact that God is reigning over the world through His anointed King. 
which is originally David, but ultimately Jesus. God is reigning over the world through his anointed king. Originally, that's David. Ultimately, that's Jesus. And it's introduced to us all the way back in Psalm 2, where it says this in Psalm 2, 1 to 6. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy So think about that picture for just a minute. In Psalm 2, all the nations are gathered together and they're thinking to themselves, how can we defeat the Lord? How can we take his people, this nation of Israel, and wipe them off the face of the map? How can we come together as a group and kill them all? And his response, God's response, is first to laugh at them, which I love that. Time out. Let me just have a laugh break. And then, it's to take his chosen king, the one that he has put at the tip of the spear of his kingdom, originally David, ultimately Jesus, and put him on the holy hill. That's my plan. And if the people reason that God has done this, If he has chosen David for this task, for such a role as this, as being the tip of the spear of his kingdom that he thrusts into the rest of the world, if he's chosen David for that task, then he's not going to abandon him. We know that. We believe that. We're confident about that. Finally, I want you to see, as the king goes... So goes the nation. As the king goes, so goes the nation. Look at verse 9. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. I want you to notice something really important about this psalm, something of particular interest to us. The people don't even pray for themselves. They pray for the king. Sure, we have verses 7 and 8, which do include them in that. We trust in the name of the Lord. They say we rise and stand upright. Of course, they know that that's going to be the effect, but they're not praying for themselves. They're praying for the king. Now, to be sure, have you ever seen a king go into battle? Even in the movies? The king's on the front line. In fact, that's the place where David placed Uriah so that he would die. It was right there on the front line. The kings don't, they're not on the front line. They're in places of relative safety, even if they're out on the battlefield. They might go in and finish off somebody, but they're going to be protected at all costs. And even if the king were to go into the battle, he is one man. Wouldn't it make more sense to pray for the army? Wouldn't it make more sense to pray for the ones that are doing the bulk of the fighting? If a military chaplain was standing in front of our military about to go into a night raid or something like that, how much sense would it make for him to ignore them altogether and pray for the president? Probably not why he's there. Wouldn't it make more sense to pray for the ones who are in need of being protected from the sword? And the answer is no. The people know that they're saved by their association with the king. The people are saved by their association with the king. 
This wasn't merely true of David. Israel has known this going all the way back to Abraham. First, they were all condemned with Adam, the first appointed head over the human race. They all fell when he fell, even though they weren't there. But they also knew this going back to Abraham. Remember when God first comes to Abraham in Genesis 12? He makes to him a promise. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, he makes a promise. It's really important that you understand. He says this to him. He says, and I will make you a great nation. Is God talking to Abraham? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make, you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Well, that's good, but listen to this in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, the people by their positive association with Abraham will be rewarded by God and blessed by God. The people in their negative association with Abraham will be cursed by God. Immediately after that, do you remember what happens in the story in Genesis? Abram and Sarai go into Egypt and Pharaoh takes Sarai to be his wife, takes, him into, takes her into his house. And do you remember what the Lord does to Pharaoh? Visits him with plagues. Why? Because he has been a cursing to Abram. And he's honoring the promise that he made to Abram back in chapter 12. And then Lot, his nephew, has grown prosperous by being near Abram. His herd has grown immensely, so much so that the two need to separate. And so Lot goes out and near immediately upon his separation from Abram gets kidnapped. And Abram has to go rescue him. And then Lot ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know where this story's going. Lot's out in Sodom and Gomorrah because the land looked really good to him. And God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for its sin. Yet on the pleading of Abraham, the Lord is willing to grant that if there are ten righteous people, for your sake, Abraham, I will spare the city. Well, he doesn't find ten righteous people. He finds Lot and his family. And then he saves Lot before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And the biblical writer tells us this in Genesis 19, 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered who? Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Why was Lot saved? Lot was saved because of his association with Abraham. By the way, in the New Testament, the Pharisees are convinced that they're going to be saved by the same association Lot was. They're convinced that they're going to be saved because of their positive association with Abraham. It's their bloodline. We are children of Abraham. And because of our bloodline, we're naturally going to be saved do you remember what John the Baptist says to them when he's in the Jordan River baptizing in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9? And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And this is precisely why it's important that we understand the psalm first and then apply it. Because when I tell you that Joel Osteen is wrong about his interpretation of verse 4 of this psalm, it might at first feel like a wet blanket. Well, man, here I, I thought I had a promise. I thought I was going to get something. I thought I was going to leave happy. And then Michael just throws a wet blanket on the whole deal. What about I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Nope. Listen to him preach on that. Throws a wet blanket on that too. What about he works all things together for good? Threw a wet blanket on that too. Doesn't promise me a job. And there might have been the faintest thought in your mind. Can we just have one hopeful promise like this? Something I can stick on my mirror in the morning? I can walk out of my bathroom going, yeah! Yeah! Let me set my heart's desire to the right thing. And this psalm tells me 
God is going to grant that. And I like the idea of a psalm I can quote to myself like that. May God grant your heart's desires. The problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it promises too much. It's that it promises too little. It doesn't promise enough. You've seen the context of this psalm is that the people are singing this of David as he's preparing for battle. But now let's think about this psalm Christologically. What does it mean now that we've seen what Christ has done, how he lived, what the New Testament has to say about him, and all the things the New Testament brings out about him, and all the things the New Testament talks about, the Old Testament talking about Jesus, and all those things. Surely this psalm means something. Jesus himself tells us the Old Testament points to him. So what about this psalm? How does it point to Christ? Well, now that Christ has come, this psalm finds its fulfillment in him. We see that he is David's heir. He is the true. He is the perfect. He is the appointed king over the kingdom of God. And he is the one that this psalm is actually about. His spirit actually wrote it. Just as David is going into battle and he gathers his brothers and sisters around him to seek the Lord's help, he first seeks the Lord's help. And he gathers all these people around him to offer up prayers on his behalf that the Lord would give him the victory. That was his heart's desire. And he prayed that the Lord would grant him his heart's desire. The people prayed that on his behalf to fulfill his plans. May we shout for joy at the salvation of David before Jesus goes to the cross. Do you remember that night? What he does in the garden? Gathers together his disciples around him in the garden to pray. And he is praying in agony of what is about to happen. So as drops as of blood come to his forehead. We see Jesus himself seeking salvation from God the Father. If it be your will, this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. On the cross, in the midst of the very fight, he calls out to the Father and he quotes, you're never going to believe this, Psalm 22 is just a couple down the road. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus dies. But as David was answered, victory was given to him, obviously, as Psalm 21 points out. So also victory was ultimately given to Jesus when three days later he came forth bodily out of the grave. Who raised God, uh, Jesus from the dead? Who raised him from the dead? The New Testament tells us God the Father raised him from the dead. Before the watching world, he vindicated Christ. In front of all our eyes, he vindicated Christ in the resurrection. Now, remember that verse in Psalm 2, when God is establishing David as his son, originally David, ultimately Jesus, and setting him on his holy hill, he later says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now the New Testament is going to apply that verse to Jesus. And they're going to say, yes, originally David, ultimately though, Jesus. But do you know when they apply that verse to Jesus? They point it out several times, four times I think it is, in the New Testament. Paul in Acts 13, says this, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Victory was given to Jesus at the resurrection and God declared without equivocation, this is my beloved son. Had he done that before? 
He had told me that he was the son of God. I read it there in the gospels, but you know, I was having a hard time believing him. I didn't know whether that was true or not, whether he was telling me the truth, whether he was jiving me, but no. At the resurrection, he proved it. Yeah. He is indeed the son of God. Now I know, as the psalm says, the Lord saves his anointed. Who is his anointed? Christ. We see in Jesus that the Lord's help is the only way to victory. He knows that it's God the Father that's going to give him the victory. We also know in Jesus that the Lord is predisposed to help his king. But where does that leave us? What does this psalm actually say to us if we're going to interpret this corporately? How do we think about this psalm and how it relates to us? The people at the end of Psalm 20 pray, O Lord, save the king. They know that salvation only comes by God saving his king. In other words, if I am submitted, if my knee is bowed to the right king, the one whom God vindicates, the one whom God protects, the one who is appointed uniquely to be at the spearhead of the kingdom of God, if my knee is submitted to that king, then I am safe. I don't have anything to worry about. That's the only way I'm safe. Because even if I'm spared from battle, judgment falls on this kingdom, I'm a dead man. What does it matter? They are saved by association. This is where the sweetness of this psalm comes to us. Brothers and sisters, you and I are here today because we are claiming association with Jesus. With his death, with his burial, with his resurrection, we are saying he is the king that I am submitting to. No one else. If he tells me to respect my governing authorities, if he tells me to obey what they ask me to do in the here and now, I am going to do it not because they're governing authorities, but because he has told me to to submit to them. He's the king I'm submitting to. I live in his kingdom. I obey him above all else. He is the only one that has my allegiance. He is the only one that has my heart. I seek salvation from no other source. I give my worship to no one else. My heart, my life, my soul is fully submitted to that king, Jesus. By the way, brothers and sisters, that is biblical faith. Nothing short of that is considered belief in Jesus. Complete, total, full submission to him as king is the only thing that equals Christianity. Nothing else suffices. Nothing else will do. Don't give me the whole, well, I was baptized one time. I go to church. Well, sometimes I read my Bible or I try to pray. Don't give me that. Do you, right now, submit your knee, your heart, and all of your affection to Christ above all else? Nothing short of that is biblical faith. It's full submission to Jesus as king or nothing. When we have that kind of faith, though, We live inside and under his rule and his reign. We live inside the kingdom of God. We then receive all the blessings that God bestows to his king. Read Ephesians 1. All the blessings are given to us in the heavenly places. 
We receive all the blessings that God bestows to his king. Everyone who submits their hearts fully to Christ's rule and reign receive all the benefits that are given to him. So do you understand that some preachers will read the scriptures and they will see things like, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And they will want you to take your minds to all the plans that you have right now as if that verse is saying that directly to you. Do you have dreams for a bigger house? For a better job? For a nicer car? I don't want you to think about that. Because help me, if that's the biggest promises in the scriptures, who cares? Let's go home. Because it's worthless. It doesn't matter if jet skis and yachts are the only things in our future, then what good is it? It's no good. I don't want you to think about that. I want you to see that when you are in Christ, He gives you new desires. He replaces your heart. Your heart can't be trusted to have the right kind of desires. He gives you new desires and a new heart. Because listen, If your desire is to live your best life now, then you're going to hell. I want your best life to be after you die. The whole purpose of preaching is to fill the members of the body of Christ with hope in the life to come. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're focused on. And realizing at the same time the futility of wealth in the here and now. Of wealth, of prosperity, of salvation, even political hope being fulfilled. You might be materially poor. You might be materially rich. You might have zero power and influence in this world. You might have tons of power and influence in this world. But let me tell you, if your life is not fully submitted to Christ as King, whatever you have or don't have is worthless. Because in a few years, your life is going to be over and your body and soul are going to be thrown into hell. And what did your power and influence buy you then? How many jet skis will you have to sell to get out of hell? Those who have submitted their lives to Christ now have confidence in their association with Him. That's the beauty of this psalm. It's a confidence in the congregation in associating themselves with the king. We know God's going to save the king. In our case, we already know God has saved the king. So what does that make us? as members of his body. It makes us saved. What kind of confidence can you have then? Well, have you ever struggled with sin? Have you ever thought to yourself, man, how many times can I come back to the Lord and confess sin before he finally just rejects me altogether? Before he's finally sick of it? This tells us he will reject you when he rejects Christ. Have you ever gone through a stretch of suffering where you thought, is God even hearing my prayers? He seems to be silent. God, do you see these tears streaming down my face? Do you not see them? Not only does he see them, he counts them all knows every single one of them. And the scriptures tell us that he will wipe away those tears from your eye because he's tracked every single one of them down. How do we know that? Did he answer Jesus' prayer in the garden? Though he suffered, he rose. Of course he did. Not only does he see, but he counts them. And why does he do that? It's because of your association with his son. That's the only reason. He hears your prayers not because of your eloquence or your intelligence. 
You don't have to worry about praying in front of people that you say the right words or if you stumble over your words. Why? Because God accepts you on the grounds of his son. And that's it. Your association with his king. We can also know that in our prayers, that very same son is interceding on our behalf at this very moment. Life really boils down to a question of which you'd rather have. Would you rather have momentary trinkets that last for however long your heart will continue to beat, but then afterward run through the hands of your soul like water? Or would you rather give up on that for an eternity of joy in the life to come? Because listen, if your heart is set on Jesus Submitting your life to him as king, associating with him in his death and resurrection, even if that means your own death, and if your heart is set on an eternity with him, then may the Lord grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of those plans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray that that would be true in every single one of our hearts. More than anything, we would feel a deep longing, a desire for an eternity with you in the age to come. And whatever possessions we have to sell to buy that field, I pray we would do it. If it's friends, if it's jobs, if it's money, if it's family, if it's home, if it's whatever we have to do to get rid of those obstacles that keep us, that distract us, that pull us away and make us think, that these riches are what it's about, whatever we have to do, let us get rid of it. Whatever sin individually we're holding on to, whatever thing we pursue sinfully that we think is very enjoyable and worth our time and attention, will you show us the futility of that? Will you surpass its pleasures with a clear picture in our mind of our place in the kingdom in association with Jesus? Will you do that in our church? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.